want to share a couple of scriptures tonight. Acts, if you will, the book of Acts. And uh, I'll explain what I want to talk about in just a moment or so. But we'll start in Acts chapter 8. So Acts chapter 8. It's a little bit of a Bible study. I hope you don't mind that. In other words, I'm going to be flicking here and there throughout the Bible. Uh, I hope you can just keep up with me a little bit. Now, we've got four books that give us the life story of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then we have one book that gives us a 30-year history, approximately, of the church. So four of Jesus and then one of the church, the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, of course, people are converted and become Christians and the gospel news spreads further and further afield. And uh, there are, I think I once worked out, there are about 31 references to conversion in the book of Acts. Uh, but there's only like uh, four or five that go into the detail. It just presumes everybody reading it knows what it goes on. Uh, the very first one, of course, we won't go there, but Acts chapter 2 talks about people receiving the Holy Spirit and so forth and uh, gives the details for that. Um, but I'm going to pick up one of those conversion experiences in Acts chapter 8. It is the conversion of the Samaritans. The Samaritans, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. So that's a, it's about 50 kilometers away north of Jerusalem there. Oh, not quite that far, actually. But it's north of Jerusalem. It's where all the Samaritans lived up there, Samaria, and preached Christ to them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies or paralysis, uh, uh, and, and that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Uh, verse uh, 9. But there was a certain man called Simon. Now, this is not Simon Peter. This is a different Simon. Simon's a very common name in Bible days. Which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with his sorceries. Verse 12. Maybe he was a bit like Kingsley and was the local LSD dealer or something or other. And uh, that was what they're handing out, or magic mushrooms or something. We're not quite sure. It doesn't give any details, but you get the gist of it, okay? Verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now just stop there for just a moment because what I want to talk about tonight is I just want to point out to you the, the, the difference between uh, many people who claim that believing in Jesus in and of itself saves you versus what we tend to say in the Revival Fellowship. Yes, you've got to believe in Jesus, 100% true, but then you've got to do something with that. And the Bible teaches us you need to repent. Repent means change your mind. And even after you've repented, that's not quite enough. You then need to get baptized. The Bible says the like figure whereunto baptism does now save us. And then even that's not going to actually do the number because the Bible then teaches us that we then get filled with God's Holy Spirit. God fills us with the Holy Spirit. We have that miracle experience of speaking in tongues and that completes the package. And when we, I mean, what made me think of this was um, 
we I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, I think we had about 16 new people at the meeting at Yanjabat, and um, nearly all of them were kind of, um, uh, I mean, they were lovely people, lovely young people, but nearly all of them were of the kind of ilk of the kind of Church of Christy, Baptisty sort of philosophy, that all you need to do is just believe in Jesus. That's it. In and of itself, that does the whole job for you. There's nothing else required. And I tended to sit there trying to explain to various ones of them that isn't what the New Testament teaches. Yes, you do have to believe in Jesus, but you've got to do something else. And it's what you've got to do is you've got to receive the Spirit. And uh, I want to go through that a little bit tonight and point out to you they are distinct. In verse uh, 12 there, when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ or the fame of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Verse 13, then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized and so on. Now, we've got a group of people here in Samaria. Uh, we don't know, a couple of hundred, who knows, 20? I've got no idea. But it says a bunch of them there and they believe in Jesus. And I guess what I often throw out to people is, does that mean that they've now got the Holy Spirit? And quite often when you talk to people who don't know much about it, I mean, you've got to realize, of course, for most of us, and I was in that same category, uh, uh, my dad was Catholic, my mother was Church of England, we were raised as Methodists and so forth. Uh, the gist of it was, I mean, it was all a bit vague anyway, to be honest, but it was kind of based around the concept of believing in Jesus. Yes, for sure. And when you talked about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was always very nebulous, obscure. You know, the, the, the most I can remember them talking about the Holy Spirit in my childhood church experience was uh, when the minister would say at the end of something, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that was about it. I had no idea what the Holy Spirit did or who he was, or what his job was, where he was, what he was up to this weekend. It was just his name seemed to just get tacked onto the end of that prayer in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's all I knew. Now, don't get me wrong. Maybe I was a bit ignorant or, you know, unlearned in that sense. But when we go back through the New Testament, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, it's the same word in the Greek, uh, the Holy Spirit experience is crucial. Uh, now, you're thinking to yourself, but Kevin, you haven't actually proved anything yet. How do we know these people haven't got the Holy Spirit? You're sort of implying they haven't. Go to verse 14. Now, when the apostles, which are at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. And it doesn't specify what happens here, but we know they simply speak in tongues. That's the Bible principle. Uh, we know it's not a miracle of healing or some other thing, because this fellow Simon's already seen all of that back in verse 13. He continued with Philip, wondering and beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. 
and he didn't offer any money for that at all. He only offered money when it came to this thing where they'd be praying with people with their hands laid on them and something suddenly happened and he saw them receive the Holy Ghost. It actually proves that they speak in tongues because the fact that it doesn't mention it means that it's the standard process. It's what everybody reading this knows happens. All the people say. It's that simple. Now, of course, as I say, my point tonight is just to point out that believing in Jesus and receiving the Holy Ghost are actually distinct. Yes, please believe in Jesus. No problem at all. Jesus is at the heart of the New Testament message. God loved us so much, he sent Jesus to die for our sins. Jesus came here 2,000 years ago. He died at Calvary. He went through incredible agony and suffering to rescue us and to help us, to heal us and to bless us. We know that. He was then raised from the dead by the power of God. But for the last 2,000 years, roughly, we haven't had Jesus walking around the streets of Jerusalem or Perth or Los Angeles or London or somewhere. What we've had is individuals who receive the Holy Ghost. They're the ones that are walking around telling this amazing message. And that's why it's so crucial. So yes, they hadn't received the Spirit. I will point out to you, by the way, back in verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. I mentioned to you it's about sort of 40 or 50 kilometers away. You've got to generally you'd walk down from Samaria up in the north there, down to Jerusalem. No doubt somebody kind of maybe was half jogging, doing a bit of a run sort of thing to get back there. You know, maybe they arrived in Jerusalem out of breath a little bit and they ran into where the apostles were hanging out at the moment. Hey, guys, you're not going to believe this. Uh, Philip's up in Samaria at the moment. A whole bunch of them have been baptized. Oh, really? Yeah, it's amazing. You should see the whole crowd of them, including this magician guy, Simon. Oh, amazing. Wonderful. Uh, did they all receive the Holy Spirit? No. None of them. Ah, oh, bother. Read it again, verse 15. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them. And I often ask the question of people, how do we know that for an absolute fact? Because none of them spoke in tongues. It's that simple. Uh, and the guy coming down to Jerusalem is thinking to himself, well, I don't know where this is going. This is a bit of an unusual pattern we've got here. A whole bunch of people getting baptized. Nobody's got the Holy Ghost. This is a job for super apostles. <laughs> so he rushes down to Jerusalem to tell the apostles. But immediately when they hear the news in verse, uh, verse 15, and when they were come down, prayed for them, uh, sorry, verse 14, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost and Simon sees it and so on and so on. In other words, send a couple of experienced hands down there, uh, get them praying and get them filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, whether this is, uh, I mean, it would take a minimum of kind of a, I want to say, I mean, I suppose it depends on how you go, whether you go on a mule or a horse, or most people just walked in those days. Uh, but it, it would take a minimum of a day to get down there, tell the guys, a minimum of a day to get back, or maybe you've got to sort the guys out. Hey, who's available to go to Samaria? Oh, I don't know. Maybe Peter could go up there. Maybe John could go up there. Oh, look, how about you? Were you free, uh, Judas? No, I'm not free. Are you free, Sons? No, I'm not free. I'll oh, grab Peter, see if he's free. Maybe it took another day organising all of that. I don't know. Maybe it's three days later. Maybe it's a week later. We don't know. We'll find out when we get there. But whatever it was, they believed on day one. 
And it's not until several days later they receive the Holy Ghost. And I guess what that does for most people is it throws up the question, but look, you revival people are a bit, you know, dogmatic about the Holy Ghost thing. You know, I was pretty happy just to leave it as Father, Son and in the prayer. You know, but what, you people are really making a bit of a fuss about this. Why is that? Why can't we just leave it at believing? Well, let's go to a few verses. Romans chapter 8, if you will. I want to just point out to you just for a minute or two. This receiving the Holy Ghost, it's not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's an absolute requirement. Without it, you're dead meat. Simple as that. Forgive me for being so blunt. Uh, I'm only doing, saying things like that because normally Pastor Simon would say that sort of stuff, and he's not here tonight. He's down in the country, so it's my job to say it for him. Romans chapter 8, and I will just bring a couple of verses out to you. Verse 9, just to start us off. But ye, or you, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, uh, this, is, this verse is really pointing out that without the Spirit, you are none of God's. You don't belong to God. You're not in his family. You're not in his kingdom. You're not part of the plan. You haven't hooked up with him yet. Uh, he says, you are none of his. That to me sounds fairly uh, blunt, but uh, uh, another translation, I'll give you a few different versions of that. Another translation says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him and is not a child of God. Ouch. That's pretty harsh. Reckon Pastor Simon's harsh. That's harsh. Another translation says, Those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. Another translation says, If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ living in him, he is not a Christian at all. Now, just to make clear, why would Paul say that to a group of Christians at Rome? This is to Christians at Rome. He's making it clear because he wants to make an absolute uh, distinction between with the Spirit, without the Spirit. Because in every assembly around the world today, 2,000 years ago, there would always have been a few people still praying for the Holy Spirit. Whether they were praying for three days like the Samaritans, whether they were praying for seven days like the apostles, whether they were praying for three days like Paul the apostle, we know all these stories, I'm sure. There would always be a few people. And Paul wants to make it clear, let's call a spade a spade here. Guys, no matter how many people are sitting in your auditorium, if anyone doesn't yet have the Holy Spirit, he is not yet a Christian. Now, what can happen, don't get me wrong, is that, you know, you can have people who've been praying for the Spirit for weeks or months or years, and they're accepted as part of the assembly and the fellowship, which is wonderful, very generous-hearted people, uh, and perhaps they're involved in different activities and what have you. But Paul is making it absolutely clear, look, even though that may be true, they're actually not yet a Christian. Wherever your assembly is, whether it's Rome 2,000 years ago, Perth, Western Australia in the year 2023, Brazil, Africa, China, wherever it happens to be, they're not yet a Christian. And um, that's why we continue to pray with them. Jesus did say, if you ask and keep asking, you will receive the Spirit. Uh, and we teach people to do exactly that. Praise the Lord. 
But Paul says, let's call a spade a spade. They're not yet a Christian. I may need to make a little point here. Uh, you're, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, the spirit. If so be the spirit of God dwell in you. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And it's starting to sound like there's a couple of different spirits here. The spirit, the spirit of God, and the spirit of Christ. Keep your finger there and go over to Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment because it's important to get your head around this. As I say, a little bit of a Bible study. Hope you can just keep up with me tonight. So we're sort of at the point now of reasons that you must have the Holy Spirit. You must get the Holy Spirit because these reasons are dotted right through the New Testament and, they're, and they're, the statements are made very, very plainly and we're meant to pick up on it. Ephesians chapter 4, down in verse, uh, 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 verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. And he goes on there a little bit about this uni unified aspect of God and his nature. And that's his point, of course, back in verse uh, 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, he's appealing to us to maintain that sense of unity within the body of Christ. It's very easy to fall out, isn't it? It's very easy to get upset with somebody. You know, somebody jumped my spot in the queue at the coffee at the end of the meeting or somebody parked in my normal car spot out the back there or uh, somebody, usually the pastor didn't even say hello to me tonight. Hello, everybody. That way you won't be able to say that later. The pastor didn't even shake my hand. You know, he, uh, I saw him. He gave me the evil eye out of the right side like that. And that was all I got for the whole night. And it's very easy to fall out with people. And that's why over and over again in the New Testament, uh, the Bible tells us that we must actually endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, it's up to us to put the effort in to cement that unity within the fellowship. And that's why he goes on with all this oneness thing. There's one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And in particular, he says that there's one spirit. There's only one spirit. Now, that one spirit may be, you know, um, described in different ways. It's the spirit of truth. Jesus used that expression back in John. It's the spirit of light. It's the spirit that raised Christ from the dead. It's the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. It's the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ but there is actually only one spirit, and all the people said. And Paul is really, in a sense, trying to uh, bring in all of these titles of the spirit back in Romans chapter 8. So if you go back to Romans 8 again, he's trying to bring all these titles in to help us to understand it's actually just all the one thing. That's all it is, just the one thing. Uh, verse 9, But you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be the spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And I've gone through the different definitions for that. Not a Christian, doesn't belong to him at all, and so on and so on. And uh, I've gone through the reasoning for that. No doubt back in Rome, there were people who had not yet received the Holy Ghost. He, Paul wanted to make it absolutely clear. They might be nice people. They might have been baptized. They might come to our church every Sunday. But they're not actually someone that belongs to God yet. Uh, you're going to have to keep seeking. So the first reason why you must have the Holy Spirit here is that it, 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 you're none of his. You just don't belong to God without the Spirit. Second reason, the verse before, chapter 8 again, and verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. They that are in the flesh cannot 
please God. And that's why we get verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. So he's pointing out to us that no matter what you do to the flesh in the New Testament era, you will never be able to please God. You can study the Bible till you're black and blue. You can join some sort of a class. You can perhaps go off to university and do a Bachelor of Divinity or something rather. Or perhaps at the other end of the spectrum, you can devote yourself in service to the, the lepers of India or perhaps the uh, misfortunate folk in Africa or Central America or somewhere or other. You can involve yourself in a drug program and a rehab system or something or other. But if you're in the flesh, you can never please God. Never. But you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be the spirit of God dwell in you. In other words, as soon as you receive the Holy Spirit, you do please God. And all the people say, what a treasure that is. Not by anything we've done. I mean, I, I love the New Testament principle. It's not what we've done that matters. It's what he did. That's why I love the communion service, because it's all about what he did for us. Over again, if you will, we'll keep moving here, trying to look for the next verse. Verse 11. We haven't moved out of Romans hardly. Verse 11. Uh, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. By his spirit. Third reason here you've got to have the Holy Spirit is because it's the spirit that's going to raise you up to be with God and live forever and ever. All the people say it reminds me of the little illustration that they used to do in the Sunday school classes. They'd have like um, uh, corks and they'd run a magnet over the top. No, none of the, none of the corks jumped to the magnet. They weren't raised up. And then they'd put pins in the magnet, in the, in the corks, and they'd run the magnet over the top again and all the little corks would just jump up to the magnet. I'm sure you'll remember that. Other kids play a little game where they do fishing with magnets and uh, metal fish and so forth. And that's the principle. Because it is spirit in you, You'll be raised up. It's just so wonderful. Thank God. Uh, he will quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit. Everybody else out there, they're made of dust and they're going to return to dust. You know, uh, again, I, 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 I've mentioned this before, but often when I'm working in the garden, I was working in the garden the other day doing some reticulation there, trying to get retic working and so on. And as I'm working there, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder who this is. <laughs> They're made of dirt and they go back to the dirt. They return to dirt again. I wonder who I'm handling here. Because people are made of dirt. That's all they're made of. And then we return to fertilizer after 70 rubbish years. That's all it is. 70 or 80 years. That's all you get. Uh, or if by reason of strength, four score. Uh, so, yes, we want to be raised up. That's the reason you need the Spirit. Let's go to another verse. Uh, verse 14, just moving on. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage or slavery, again, to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The next reason, number four here, that you've got to have the Holy Spirit is to become a child of God. It's the spirit of adoption. 
Elsewhere, the Bible talks about people in this world and in different ways and so forth. It describes some as being sons of the world and people of the world, people of the prince of the air and so forth. Others are described as being uh, children of the devil. Now, I'm not going to go speculating where everybody fits in this world, but uh, clearly, I just want to be a son of God. That's what I want to be. And according to the Bible, the, what makes me a son of God is when I receive the spirit of adoption, God's Holy Spirit. Without that, you ain't adopted. I mean, I could walk into uh, perhaps a, you know, Rupert Murdoch's building in New York there and say, look, hello, Mr. Murdoch, I'm the son you didn't realize you had. I'm claiming my inheritance. I'm prepared to go three ways with the other boys. No problem. We'll all take a third each. But you can't do that. Because you're not a son. You're not, there's nothing that entitles you to that, unless you actually produce some sort of documentation. And in this case here, the Bible says to us, don't you get it? This is crucial. You've got to have the correct documentation that you are a son of God. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba means dad. You know, when you pray to God, you don't have to sort of, uh, you know, uh, launch your highly religious prayers, O heavenly Father, thou that art in heaven, a glory be thy name, and so on and so on. You know, just get on your say, hey, Dad, I need help. Dad, can you fix this up for me? I'm in trouble. I need this sorted. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba means Dad. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. As soon as you've had that experience of receiving the Spirit, speaking in tongues, that is confirmation. That's ratification that you are a child of God. Uh, he goes on in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And he points out here that uh, if you want to receive the inheritance, you've got to persevere through the process that gets you the inheritance. In our case, it's going through our trials and tribulations, maybe a bit of persecution here and there. You've got to hang on. You don't uh, simply relinquish it halfway through and then expect to get the reward at the end. That doesn't make any sense. If so be that we are, uh, what's he say there, the wording? If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, if you will. Ephesians chapter 1. As a little bit of a Bible study. Um, Ephesians 1. This is the Christian church at Ephesus in what we know today as uh, southern Turkey. Ephesians chapter 1. And it describes the, how the Ephesians became Christians in verse 13. In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. And we've kind of got two uh, reasons that you've got to have the Spirit here. The first one and the biggest one is you were sealed. And for those that are interested in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek here, it's the Greek word spragizo. It means to stamp with a signet for security purposes. It means to seal, to authenticate, to stamp, to set a mark upon. Uh, it's it's it, the process by which you you know you'd seal a letter in with wax or perhaps seal another document with uh, uh, some sort of ink or something or other. 
And he's saying, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit coming into you authenticates you, seals you, permanently marks you as someone that belongs to God. He then goes on and gives us another piece of information in verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. He says, having the Holy Spirit is the down payment. It's the deposit. That's what the word means. It's the uh, proof. It's, the, it's, that, it's that little bit that you pay up front, the receipt that you get up front that actually entitles you to the whole object later on. That's what it means. Uh, it's the Hebrew word originally, ahabon, and it means, uh, and it's in the Greek also, ahabon. It means a pledge, a deposit, a guarantee. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. Another translation said, the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he has promised us. It's the guarantee. All the people said. Um, over in Ephesians chapter 4, across the page, down at the end there, verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. You're authenticated, you're stamped, you're marked. Yeah, God has placed his, his uh, badge upon you and you are that remains upon you until the day of redemption, until the day that you are lifted up, the day that you're redeemed. Uh, grieve not the Holy Spirit. In other words, make sure that our lives are consistent with what God expects of us. We want to live good lives. We want to live Christian lives. And every now and again, we're tempted to, to break out and behave like a worldly person. And the Bible says, don't do that. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Stick within the boundaries you know you're supposed to stick within. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, uh, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Uh, we'll go on again. John chapter 3, and I'm starting to head towards the end of this little theme tonight. John chapter 3, very famous passage. I know we've used it many, many times, but I want to just elaborate a little bit on this one. John chapter 3, it's the famous born-again passage where I think we've all read it before many times. Verse 1, John chapter 3, verse 1, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, we've seen tonight already that if without the Spirit, we don't belong to him. Without the Spirit, we can't please him. Without the Spirit, our body's not going to be raised up. Without the Spirit, we're not identified as the children of God. Without the Spirit, we have no seal from God. We have no down payment on our eternal life. And now Jesus paints even a more blunt picture and says, if you're not born of the Spirit, if you're not born again, you, he says here, uh, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It's that straightforward. Uh, uh, verse, uh, verse, I'll go on in verse 6. That, uh, uh, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Again, and the reason I want to just uh, talk about this just for a little moment is because 
In this passage here, Jesus points out, I mean, we know the New Testament's all about Jesus, his sacrifice, his death. We know all that. We know that bit. That's pretty straightforward, I think. But what Jesus is pointing out here is the New Testament is also all about you being converted into a completely different creature. Before you got it, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. You were just made of flesh. You were just made of, uh, you know, uh, atoms and molecules and all that sort of stuff, proteins, amino acids, and so on and so on and so on. That's what you're made of. And what sort of a life expectancy did you have with that? You were just going to die and become fertilizer and be in Pastor Kevin's front lawn when he does his retic. That's all you could expect. And uh, your existence was completely uh, uh, stopped by being in the flesh. And now he says, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Once you receive the Holy Spirit, the creature on the inside has begun again. It's a completely new one. The creature on the inside, sounding a little bit like one of those alien movies, isn't it? Where the alien comes and inhabits the human body and all that sort of stuff. Actually, it's one or two saints that I wonder sometimes. Anyway, <laughs> but the Holy Ghost comes and inhabits us, joins together, and the Bible says elsewhere, makes a new creature. There is then quite clearly in the Bible this description of us having an outer man and an inner man. The outer man perisheth daily, but the inner man is renewed day by day. We go through our dramas and our trials, all that sort of stuff, but the inner man is getting stronger and stronger and stronger because we have the Spirit. We've been born again, literally in the Greek, born from above. That's where we've been born from. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. When God looks at us, he doesn't look particularly at our bodies. Uh, he looks at what's on the inside, the Spirit, the Holy Ghost experience. And that is one of the fundamental changes of the New Testament. Who would I grasp that? You know, throughout the Old Testament, you know, they say, what about the compassion, you know, forgiveness of sins, you know, and so on and so on. There's all that in the Old Testament. There's compassion, there's forgiveness of sins. Sit and read Psalm 103 for a while. There's uh, mercy, there's also blessing from God, there's healing, there's all those sorts of things in the Old Testament. What there ain't is a person being made into a new creature through the Spirit. Elsewhere, the Bible says in Colossians, we won't look it up, it says the mystery is Christ in you. The problem most people have, turn across to John chapter 14 for a moment. John 14, where Jesus uses another uh, way of describing this. John 14, uh, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I'll pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. And Jesus points out here that most people in the world don't perceive the Holy Ghost. They don't get it. It doesn't mean anything to them. It's just what you stick on the end of in the name of the Father, the Son, and that's all it is. But for you and I, all of a sudden, the Holy Ghost, as Jesus points out here, a little further down in verse 20, at that day, ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. All of a sudden, what happens is we receive the Holy Ghost. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. We're in a different realm. All of a sudden, we're in God's Holy Ghost experience, new creature on the inside. Uh, 
Christ is in God, God's in Christ, and we are in them. We've suddenly become part of that Godhead experience. And uh, I'm not going to talk anymore about that particularly, but Jesus says, but for worldly people, they can't see it. They can't perceive it. Uh, back in John chapter 3 there, Jesus put, don't look it up, Jesus pointed out, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word also means in the Greek to perceive, to grasp, to understand. They can't grasp it. And that's why when we're talking with people and you and I sit here saying all the time, but, but don't you get it? It's pretty obvious, getting filled with the Holy Ghost, getting filled with the Holy Ghost, pretty obvious in the Bible. Come back to the Bible with me. <laughs> they can't see it. And they won't see it until they receive the Holy Ghost, until God opens their mind, and then they can see it. Jesus goes on here, and I'm just going to finish up. At that day you shall know that I am my Father, verse 20, and ye in me and I in you. Uh, in verse uh, 25, these things I've spoken to you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I've said unto you. Throughout this passage, the Holy Ghost is he, 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 he. Quite often people talk about, have you got it yet? Did you receive it yet? There's no it. It's he. It's God. It's that little bit of God that comes and lives inside you and joins with your spirit that makes you suddenly eternal. And all the people said, there we are, seven reasons you must receive the Holy Ghost and the difference between believing and receiving.